This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. If you've been here for any time, you know I love the mindset. You know I love that part of the game of sales. And so when I saw a book called Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed, I had to take a look at it. The author is Dan McGinn. He's a senior editor at Harvard Business Review. He writes for Wired. He writes for the Boston Globe. He writes for Newsweek. And he's a Boston guy. And I invited him here to talk to you about how to get psyched up and to mentally prepare yourself to succeed. This is Daniel McGinn in the arena. Hey, Dan, how are you? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Thanks for having me on tells you where I am right now. I've done so many podcasts having written a book. I think I'm being interviewed by you. That's funny. Yeah. Now I know what that's like. (laughs) Yeah. When you write a book, you do a lot of these. Here's the thing. I think when an author writes a book, especially a book like Psyched Up, it's because you can't not write that book. And what happens to some of us, maybe you're in this category, or you can correct me if I'm accusing you of something that's not true. We tend to get hooked by an idea or wrapped around the axle on something that we just can't let go of. What happened to you that you wrote this book? So it was really three things that came together to get me interested in writing the book. The first was way back in high school. I was a high school athlete. I was not particularly athletic, not very good, didn't get a lot of playing time, but I was on the football and basketball teams. And I became fascinated by the pregame rituals, the things the coaches and the players would do to get us psyched up before the games. So that was the origin of it. Number two, As an adult professional, I would occasionally run into people, mostly they were former athletes, who had these unusual things they would do before they did their most important work to get psyched up, you know, a lawyer or a surgeon who had some sort of ritual that they'd go through. And then the third thing was I started working at Harvard Business Review and I started looking at a lot of academic research. And every so often I would see a paper come across my desk that looked at a group of people who did this before they performed an activity versus a control group. The people who did the activity better generally had some sort of preparation. So those three things were really the origination of it. You start off the book with a story, and you don't know this about me because we don't know each other, but I had two brain surgeries, having had a grand mal seizure when I was 25, And one was to embolize a group of arteries and veins that grew into a knot. And the second was to remove that knot along with the damaged brain at the back of my front right temporal lobe. I was immediately drawn into the story of the neurosurgeon McLaughlin, I think, and what he did to work with a sports psychologist to improve his state during operations. Having had a neurosurgeon, I don't know what Dr. John did to prep for mine. But I think after reading this, it was interesting to me that I was one of two people on an operating table at the same time for Dr. Two who went into one room and 
guided his assistants in opening up the cranium. And then while they were doing that work, he went into the other room and started the same surgery on a second person at the same time. And reading this, I'm thinking about what's the pre-operation ritual there. Can you walk us through his ritual and his five P's and what you gained from that? It's a great story. Yeah. So I think for him, it starts even further back. So he was a a wrestler in high school and he started out as a good wrestler, but he wasn't great. And he realized that his, you know, it wasn't his body. It was his mind. That was the problem. He was not confident enough. He was not, he was a little too anxious when he was wrestling. So he worked with the sports psychologist actually in high school to work as a wrestler and he dramatically improved. He became a state champion in high school. He went on to college. He won state, he won national championships in college. So when he got into surgery as a neurosurgeon, he realized that obviously wrestling is a lot different, but it's super stressful. It's a very concentrated burst of activity. And so he decided to adapt his wrestling warm up to his neurosurgery. So the five P's he relies on, I need to look them up because I don't remember them by heart. Looking through the pages right now, I know it involves there's a pause. He sort of stops yep. what he's doing and has sort of a very quiet moment of reflection. He thinks about the practice. He actually sort of runs through the operation in his mind, step by step, visualizing what he's going to do. He prays, uh, does sort of a quick routine prayer that he does. He focuses for a couple of moments on the patient. You know, this is a 73-year-old guy who can't walk. If I do this surgery correctly, this is going to change his life. And he thinks a, a bit about the fact that he thinks God put him on the earth to do these kind of operations. So I think the key to it is, you know, the specifics of the five P's are kind of personal to him, but he has a practice. He does, doesn't just do nothing. You know, in a sales context, you can be in the waiting room just being nervous about the presentation. He has something he does, and he does it the same way every time. There's something about rituals that make people feel comfortable, get us into that groove. So I think that's the importance of the five P's to Dr. Mark McLaughlin. It's interesting to me because the one that struck me the most was positive thoughts because that's not the words that he's using. It's not positive thoughts. To me, it was purpose because he actually says, I was put on earth to do this operation. And I'm just thinking about how empowering that thought must be. And having had a neurosurgeon who I sometimes describe as the difference between God and John 2 is that God doesn't think he's John 2, but you really don't want a nervous anxious neurosurgeon. You want somebody who is in command and in control and believes that they were here to do this. And it's always struck me. I, I just read your book, but it's always struck me thinking about what kind of person is it that looks at another human being and says, I can cut their skull open, correct this, and then give them a better life. And it has to be something deep inside that person to have the courage to to do something like that in my mind. And that positive thought about purpose really struck me as probably something that allows him to to get that state to go in and be willing and able to do something like that. Yeah, I think what part of what made McLaughlin fascinating to me is I've been in other surgical environments as a reporter and what he does is not the usual practice. You know, before, if you and I were to go to the gym this morning, we would probably stretch a little bit. We would probably do something to warm up before we just dive in. If you think about surgery, if you think about 
lawyers, lots of sort of professional kind of environments, we just jump right in without any kind of warm up, without any kind of mental preparation. The surgeons I've seen doing other surgeries, they're joking around, they're checking their email, they're filling out paperwork. You know, they treat surgery as just sort of the next step in a very routine kind of thing. It doesn't take McLaughlin long to do this, but he does sort of, you know, set aside just a couple of minutes. He doesn't talk to other people during this time. And he can't say with 100% certainty that this makes me a better surgeon, but he's convinced it's a better way for him to get ready than just checking his email or being on Twitter like the rest of us might do. I'm convinced it makes him a better surgeon. I mean, I, I think any kind of intentionality and that that level of thoughtfulness in the preparation probably does so much to his state, which is a, a good segue because there's a quote that you have in the book that I'm going to use from now on. In, in helping humans perform, psychology is the software, but biology is the hardware. And I'm fascinated by this statement upon hearing it because when you you see it, you go, yeah, that's obvious. But we don't tend to think that way and we don't tend to do the connecting of those two ideas about what's going on physiologically and in our biology when we're thinking about performance. And it made me think when I was a young kid, I played in a a hard rock band with my brother. My brother could just rock out on stage. I mean, he was so free to just move. But as we started and I was 17, I wasn't afraid of singing, but I was afraid of moving. I didn't know what to do. So I would come out and I'd be able to sing He'd be able to just have the greatest time of his life. And then our first guitar player always had to go to the bathroom and get sick before he could even walk out onto the stage. And that was his ritual. His anxiety was so high that he literally had to get sick before he could play. That lasted for years and years with him. But it's curious in in the, the chapter on fight or flight, some of us manifest that anxiousness as a fear and others manifest it as uh, an anxiousness or an energy to perform. What is the difference there, in, in your opinion, and how important is that frame going into something like that? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that, you know, when we think about fight or flight, the fight or flight instinct that's hardwired into us, there's nothing we can do about it. And it's a good thing. It's what allowed humans to survive. We think about fight or flight, we think about sort of an animal chasing us in the jungle. That's sort of the stereotypical scenario where we think about that adrenaline surge and it helps us run faster and further and and avoid being eaten by something predatory. In our professional lives, we might not make the direct connection that standing up on a stage, whether you're a singer and that's your livelihood, or whether you're giving a TED talk, or whether you're giving a job interview in front of a, a group of people, that's a threat. You know, it's a very modern day threat. You're not going to get eaten. The worst case scenario outcome there does not result in your death. But it, they say one of the things I read when I was looking at the history of stage fright is that they think that stage fright became sort of more acute in humans when lighting was invented and stage, you know, before lighting was invented, a theater might be mostly in daylight or the lighting might've been even the stage would be about as well lit as the audience was. It wasn't until the audience was in darkness and the stage was very well lit that that moment seems to have had something. It became more frightening because you would just see all these eyes on you and it sort of heightened the experience. So yeah, being up on stage it's a threat. It feels for our bodies the same way as being chased in the jungle does. We have the surge of adrenaline. And if you're going to perform well, you need to learn how to deal with that. And as you say, some people sort of can naturally segue into a positive, energized, this is going to help me mode, and others aren't there yet. So trying to figure out how to make that pivot, I think, is important for people. 
It's funny to talk about public speaking. One of my favorite Jerry Seinfeld lines, and I know you interviewed him uh, at some point in this book, his joke was, fear of speaking is the number one fear for human beings, and dying is number two. And he says what that means is you would rather be in the box than giving the eulogy. It's funny how that does manifest for people standing up and, and speaking in front of a group. And I wonder, having read this, the advice that people have been given is, I think, contra to what you would recommend after having read the book. And we tell people that they need to calm down. Is that the right advice to give someone who has that type of uh, anxiety? So you're right. That is the universal advice. There's actually a professor here at Harvard Business School who did a study on this. She's a former competitive a cappella singer, and she got interested in this because she watched hundreds of people audition through her college years. And she was wondering, you know, sort of what helped some people do better than others, irrespective of their actual vocal abilities. So she did a survey and above 90% of people, if they're asked, you know, what would you tell a colleague who's about to give a really make or break kind of speech? The universal advice is calm down, don't be nervous, that kind of thing. The problem gets back to that biology. If this is really an important event for you, it's impossible to not be nervous. That's that your body's reacting that way. You know, you can't really control it. So in her research, what she tested is the ability to sort of channel from a nervous, anxious state and move that into a more positive, excited state. You know, the idea here is that you're going to be agitated and aroused. Anxiety or nervousness is the negative manifestation of that. Excited is a more positive. And making that jump is more realistic than suddenly trying to turn the, the dial down to zero and be calm. And her studies have shown that in singing, in math with tests, in public speaking, it's a better strategy. Yeah, I had one event where I'm not a nervous speaker. I've, I've always liked being on the stage. So for me, I get the energy where I'm excited to go do something and that that's always served me well. But I had one one time where I actually did have anxiety about speaking and it was because there were 600 people in the room and it was the very first time their vice president of sales had ever gotten her team together in one room and she was brand new. And I had a one hour keynote and about... 25 minutes into her 30 minute slot, they came up to me and said, could you do 45 minutes? And I said, sure, I can absolutely modify it to, to do 45 minutes. And a few minutes later, they came back and said, what can you do in 25 minutes? And I thought, well, I certainly can't do a one hour keynote in 25 minutes. And that started to cause anxiety in me. And then on the way to the stage, for some reason, I remembered I just have to give them the best 25 minutes of their life. That's all I can do. And I got excited about it. But that anxiety, when the things change, I think that telling someone to calm down doesn't work. I don't think that that's, that's anything that somebody can just go, oh, okay, that makes total sense. Now that I know rationally I should calm down, my biology will stop, right? The biology keeps going and there has to be better strategies. I liked the story about the students in the, the music school where their teacher put them in the situations, every single thing went wrong, so that when they got into a situation where everything wasn't going to go wrong, they had a greater control over that from the rehearsal of just continuing to try to maintain their state. Yeah, that, this was a class at Juilliard taught by a psychologist, and it's an entire semester-long course that's about dealing with the anxiety that goes into auditioning. If you're a, a professional musician, 
auditions are unbelievably nerve-wracking. In classical music for a big city orchestra job, they might audition 200 people for a single slot. So it's it's unbelievably competitive. And no matter how much these kids have practiced, their anxiety can really get in their way. So that's why this course is so valuable for them. And, and you're referring to the final exam in the course. Yes, the yeah. professor tells them that they're going to do an audition, a mock audition in front of these three judges. And he leads them to expect the circumstances to be a certain way, that there's going to be a very quiet practice room, that it's going to be a screened audition with a screen between the judges and the player, that things are going to be a certain way. But when they actually come into the setting, he's messed with it so that everything is going wrong. There's a radio blaring in the practice room. There's no screen. The judges are instructed to act very rude. He actually puts ping pong balls inside the piano so that it plays poorly. And the test here is, you know, okay, you've prepared for situation A, you're in situation B, can you still do it? And hopefully they use their techniques to get through it. Yeah, and the ones who pause and try to change the circumstances and just go on with what they're supposed to do tend to do the best. Yeah, it, it, and it, again, it sort of circles back to what Dr. Mark McLaughlin does. You know, can you find a few moments in your head to sort of get yourself in the right mindset? You know, just before you jump into the setting, just take a moment for yourself, collect your thoughts, do something that gets you in the right frame of mind and tries to turn that situation around. I want to talk about pre-performance routines for for just a, a couple minutes, and I'd like to get your your thoughts on how important they really are to your overall performance and anything that you think that someone might be able to put into action for what kind of endeavors. So first, if you would just speak to how, having done the, as the research that you've done across many different domains, if you were to put a percentage, and I know I'm asking you to take something that's very subjective and make it objective, how important is overall performance? How, how important is that pre-performance routine to the overall performance? Do you have a guess at that? Well, I don't know if I could put a number on it, but I can I can try to highlight the areas where it's more important and less important. So most okay. of the research on the effectiveness of pre-performance routines comes out of sports. And generally, there's two kinds of studies on this. They, there's studies that compare people who naturally have a pre-performance routine who sort of do the same series of thoughts and actions before they dive off a high dive or shoot a free throw or you know shoot on goal in soccer versus people who don't have a routine. That's the first kind. Then they do another set of studies they do is an intervention where they'll take a group of people who don't have a routine. They'll teach them to do a routine and measure how much better they perform afterwards. Generally speaking, across all sorts of sports, people with a routine do better. People who are taught a routine do better than they did before. And the place where that's most important is in very controlled, repetitive actions. So shooting, think about shooting a free throw in basketball versus just playing basketball where you're being defended, where you're going to be doing lots of different kinds of dynamic activities. If you're in an activity where it's the same thing every time and it's just you without without anybody trying to impede you, that's the place where a pre-performance routine is going to be most important. If you're in a kind of job where it changes all the time and it's, you know, there's a lot of other people involved, you can make an argument that it might be a little bit less important in that in that setting, but that's where the research shows it's most important. Yeah, it's interesting to me because as somebody who's made literally thousands of sales calls, you know, when we tell a rep do pre-call planning, go ahead and, and jot down how you're going to open this and what we try to give them a routine so that they've got what they need to be most effective in, in this critical interaction, which is 
as sales calls a conversation. So it's a complex, dynamic human interaction where it doesn't happen the same way all the time, but there are some big, broad strokes that we know we can expect. And we resist doing any kind of pre-performance routine, even if it's just going over our notes, making sure we have talking points, making sure that we've prepped appropriately for the audience and we skip those things. And I think it has a dramatic impact on our results, that kind of preparation. Yeah, I think so. What you're talking about is very substantive. It's the nuts and bolts. So go back to the Juilliard music example. I would compare that if you're a violinist, I would compare what you're talking about as the practice, the actual, you know, 10,000 hours of playing the violin that got you ready to do that. You're talking about sort of very strategic. That's absolutely important. But you could layer on top of that a more emotionally focused kind of prep. And sometimes this is very simple. I'll tell you, I talked with a guy in sales the other day and we were talking about these pre-performance rituals and superstitions and what the difference is. And here's the strangest, probably the strangest one I've heard while promoting the book. This guy does a lot of sales calls by Skype and in his office, out of range of the camera on a shelf, he keeps a crown and it was a crown that was given to him because he was voted the king of his high school prom. And he says he keeps it there because he keeps in mind that he actually transferred high schools as a sophomore or junior. So he'd only been at this high school about a year and a half or two years when the prom came along. And he keeps it there as a reminder that he was able to fairly quickly build a connection and a rapport with people he didn't know at all, his classmates, to the point that after a fairly short period of time, they voted him the most popular kid at the school. And he said before important calls, he might even put the crown on for a couple of minutes just to remind him that, hey, you have this proven track record of connecting with people, of getting people to like you. You're about to get on this important sales call. You're going to do that again. So it's a, that's a very strange performance ritual, but it does speak to the idea that it's not just about the substance. It's also about the emotional preparation. Yeah, and I think I would tie those together just in my own experience, that if you, if you do the substantive preparation, the confidence and the mindset starts to be better. I, I told you off of the recording, I want to decide to be charming and engaging before I go in, and that's the mindset. that. So that's the routines that I do are that. I think it's interesting about a crown because that's that falls into one of those categories where it's not a superstition, but we're getting close to the superstitions. And I don't want you to touch on that because we don't have time here. But the things that show up as superstitions in the book are fascinating to me. The other thing in this section of the book that I would I, I would ask you to talk about for just a minute, I'm fascinated by the idea of a positive contagion. And I wonder if there's also a negative contagion. Yeah. I'll say this just reminding people that the only reason that this book is any good is because you typed it on another author's keyboard, right? I can't speak to whether the book is good or not. Readers have to decide that for themselves, but well, it's true. I, that I've it, decided the book is very, very good. So, But I'm not giving you any of the credit because it was certainly the keyboard. There you go. I, it's true that I typed the book on a keyboard that was used for a period of time by Malcolm Gladwell, the famous nonfiction writer from The New Yorker. I did that because of this research you suggest on positive contagion. There's research involving things like golf clubs and involving study manuals that show that if a person is asked to perform an action like putting a golf ball or studying for a test and they're told or shown that the last person who used that implement was either you know a celebrated performer or performed really, really well, 
that that can kind of rub off on them. So I tried to test that out by using Gladwell's keyboard to type the book. And I don't use it every day. I try to save it for special occasions now. It's actually, if we were on camera, I could hold it up for you. I have it right here. I pull it out when I need a little bit of boost on a high stakes assignment. And I think, you know, other people can can learn from that idea, you know, find some sort of an object, a talisman that makes you feel a little bit better. You know, it can be an article of clothing, you know, a tie that if you dress up for sales calls, a tie that you wear, you know, I've certainly talked to women who wear certain shoes or certain jewelry to their high stakes events. It doesn't have to be, you know, something as crazy as a high school prom crown. It can be, you know, but just something that makes you feel a little bit special, that boosts your mood, that boosts your confidence, that's only going to help you. Yeah. And and some of this, that really, to me, falls into the superstition. I mean, there's 0.0% chance that the spirit of Malcolm Gladwell's writing genius lives in the keyboard itself. But it does infect you with the idea that there's something special here. Does it work the other way? Does the negative contagion work? Do you know that? So I've never seen, I've never seen research that suggests an object can be kind of inhabited by evil or can pull down performance. That's an interesting question. I don't know that, you know, I could, I'd be speculating. I don't know that anybody's ever done that in a, in a rigorous research. It's the, the question though, would you buy a house where this event happened in the past? Like the event still lives in the house. I, w- I wonder if that's just part of the, the growth of consciousness and human beings do carry some superstitions. You know, even though we we live, you know, beyond the age of reason now. So there is research that gets at value. So there's, I'm not super conversant in this research, but somebody did a study one time that in a shop, in a, like a grocery store context, that they took certain objects that were, you know, considered like unpleasant and put them next to other things in a supermarket. And it was shown that people would pay less for them. So that's sort of along, you know, the objects that touch each other. There's, so there's some, some sort of strand of research in that, but I've never seen it get into actual human performance. You know, so it's a good question though. I just wonder about the team that's lost in the same stadium, you know, five years in a row and then walking into the stadium, how much does that weigh on their, their consciousness and their mindset that this is where we go to lose? And if it becomes associated that way. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of people burning sage as a way to sort of cleanse and purify spaces. And so when it comes to superstition, there's a, there's research on what kinds of people are more superstitious than other kinds of people. And it's useful to look at that and try to get a sense of yourself of whether you believe in this stuff or whether, you know, people who are like super logical, super rational, they may not care what keyboard they're writing on. But for other people, you know, it's not going to make a gigantic difference. The book doesn't write itself, but anything that can kind (laughs) of crank your odds up a little bit is worth trying. I I don't need the book to write itself in my experience. I need the book to edit itself. That would be the good part for me if it would just edit itself without me having to be there for that part. Yeah, everybody, everybody's different. You know, editing is definitely the challenge for a lot of people. Oh, it's so different. It's it, it goes from the creative state to the critic state, and it's always tough. I've gotten better at it. I've gotten less emotional about it anyway. Let's talk about just two other things real quickly that I'd like to ask you about. And, and one is the chapter on the pep talk is all wrong for me. I mean, you you think you know what the pep talk is supposed to be because you've seen it portrayed in movies and you have this experience of what they're supposed to be. But then it turns out that that's not exactly true and that there are other attributes other than this inspiration and motivation piece that we've seen 
depicted in movies that ends up being what really happens. Can you just talk about, if you can talk about one thing, one, it's really not what we think it is. And the second thing is, how does the information richness of that conversation really do the work that we were trying to get done in that kind of a pep talk? Yeah, I think a lot of what we know about pep talks or think we know about pep talks come from movies, especially sports movies. When I was reporting the book, I went out and spent some time with the guy who wrote Hoosiers because that has so many good pep talks. The thing to keep in mind is, you know, movies are fake. You know, they're dramatizations. They're inspiring. They make us tingle when we watch the speeches in those movies, but they're dramatizations. Those speeches tend to be almost 100% focused on emotion and inspiration. And that's part of what a good pep talk does. But A lot of pep talks are very, as you say, information-rich. Researchers call it uncertainty-reducing language or just direction-giving. If you think about a football locker room, the coach is probably going to say a few things to try to get the team kind of fired up and get them into this you know, ready-to-fight stage. But a lot of a pep talk is what the offensive strategy is, reminding them what the defensive strategy is, reminding them about specific plays or specific players. So as somebody, if you're a coach or a team leader giving a pep talk, I think one of the most basic decisions you need to make is what percentage am I going to focus on these directions, just the nuts and bolts, and how much am I trying to appeal to emotion? That's one of the basic decisions in this. Yeah. And and it's not something that we see portrayed in movies very often. And I think that that, that's a lot of what our models of what that's supposed to look like. But a lot of it is more strategic than that. And I found that surprising. That chapter alone is worth reading if you're a sales leader. And the template that you got from General McChrystal is a really interesting template for people who lead sales organizations to think about. So pick the book up to, to pick that piece up. Sure, when, I will. <laughs> when they were sending people out to buy it, that if they go just if they just pick that piece out and use it as how they're going to have their next meeting, they're going to do better. The one thing that I always want to listen to before I speak is for those about to rock by ACDC, what I would consider the greatest hard rock song of all time, followed by perhaps Unchained by Van Halen. I'm calibrating my emotions and my adrenaline because I want to bring a certain energy. What's on your playlist? Do you have a playlist? And what are you calibrating when you use a playlist? So you and I are about the same age, I think. So I would bet that if you made a playlist and I made a playlist, the actual titles might be different, but I would have some Van Halen on my playlist, I think. The research on what makes a song motivational, it tends to focus on two things. Number one is what they call the intrinsic musicality, basically how the song sounds, even if you've never heard it before. If there's a song that the first time you've heard it, it has no context for you, just the way the you know, the nature of the beat and the rhythm and the melody and the the words come together. If you feel something, you're just reacting to the inherent musicality. The second thing that makes a song motivational is the emotional or cultural context. You know, if it was the song at your senior prom or at your wedding, or if, you know, you recollect a warm-up song for sports when you're on the basketball team in high school, or if you just, you know, you have some, when you hear the song, something happens in your brain and takes you back to this other time. That's the emotional resonance. So I would suspect that the reason those songs appeal to you are not just about the way they sound, but they probably have some meaning for you, where you were in your life when they were popular. Is that true? Oh, it's 100% true. I can remember buying the Back in Black album, and then when For Those About to Rock came out, I mean, I'd never heard anything like it. It was 
it's still amazing to me. And I am absolutely transported back to that time immediately when the first notes played. Yeah. And the trick is to figure out what kinds of songs work for you and then put yourself in a scenario where you can use them. So I've definitely spoken with salespeople. You know, you're driving to a sales call, you can just listen to the radio and see what comes on. But there might be an incremental advantage in listening to that playlist to get yourself in the right state of mind. And these things can be very idiosyncratic. You know, the kinds of of songs that you're describing, kind of 80s rock songs for guys like us, our age, those are going to be on a lot of playlists. But I talked with one woman for the book who uses the Annie soundtrack as her psych up. You know, there's something sort of something uplifting and positive. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow. You're never fully dressed without a smile. So there's no wrong answer in here. There's just an answer that's your answer. I would just be confused upon listening to that. I don't know how I, my emotions would be calibrated, but for her, it is, it's personal. Exactly. You know, it might be disco music for somebody a little bit different age than us. So, you know, I think there is definitely a generational component to this and it goes back often to music from your teenage years. That's, you know, a time when we're very emotionally pliable and it's a time when music is really meaningful to people. Well, I I appreciate your book. It's psyched up how the science of mental preparation can help you succeed. And I'm going to say something here that might cause you to blush a little bit. But I want to I want to say this for people who are listening. If you like Gladwell, if you like Dan Pink, if you like James Sirwicky, you're going to love this book because it's in that same similar sort of style where you're being educated, but you're being educated with stories and with research that are supported by these stories that actually will help you rethink what your pre-performance rituals and strategies might be. And uh, I promise that you'll take away actual insights. So it's just a terrific book, Dan. I loved it. And thanks so much for coming on to share it. Where do you want me to send people to find out more about you? So there's a website for the book, which is www.psychedupthebook.com. And I'm on Twitter at Dan McGinn. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. That was Dan McGinn, and you can find him at psychedupthebook.com. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I publish daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, and you can find both of my books, The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the Ten Commitments That Drive Sales, and The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need at amazon.com or bn.com or in your local Barnes & Noble. When you do visit any of my sites, sign up for the newsletter, and I will see you back here next time in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.